Please turn with me to today's scripture reading, which comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and, to the, two, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We're about halfway, more than halfway through this uh, series on marriage, and we said last week that the key to understanding the relationship between a husband and his wife, that's verse 21, it's about serving one another, it's about submitting to one another, it's the mark, we said last week, that it's the mark of being filled with the Spirit, that's that passage right before this passage that we read, the mark of being filled with the Spirit, it's capped off with Uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that comes before everything else because the biggest barrier to your success in your marriage is your own selfishness. Now, when you reflect on the gospel, there's a greater love, there's a greater security that empowers you towards selflessness. That's what we said. On one hand, you know you're a sinner, but on the other hand, you just know that Jesus has been so patient with you no matter how selfish you've been. And why? The essence of the relationship between a husband and his wife. The essence in the relationship between God and his own people, his church, is the covenant. It's a legal, public commitment. It's a a love-binding, life-binding relationship. You're saying, I am bound to you forever. Now, single friends, This means you shouldn't just give yourself to somebody physically unless there's a formal promise. A formal promise that's that's made holy and publicly and legally. The biblical essence of love is first covenantal. It's first covenantal. It's a commitment. Well, what about feelings? Feelings come secondary. The Bible, this passage, it says it. It says it like this, verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. In other words, you're going to leave your father and mother, you're going to leave your family, and you're going to cleave to your spouse. To cleave is to bind yourself. That's a biblical term. It's, It's a biblical definition of love because the biblical definition of love is covenantal. You're legally bound. That means it doesn't matter how you feel because the very nature of the covenant, it's not based on how you feel. It's based on a promise. It's a based on a promise that you're going to uphold, to cherish, to love no matter what. That means, it means that every marriage has to be led by grace because you're saying no matter what, no matter how high, no matter how low, it's led by grace. And that means in order to have a successful marriage, you need to be shaped by the grace of Jesus. 
You need to be shaped by his promise. You need to be shaped by his character, the character of the gospel, the character of grace. That means you cannot enter. Nobody can enter any marriage on his own terms. There are rules, in a sense, there are rules that will keep a marriage healthy. You need to know those rules. You need to abide. It's a word we don't use often. You need to abide in those rules. Now we say, well, in our world, we hate rules. I don't want to bind myself to commit myself to anything for life. Single friends, you often ask, how do I know that this person is someone that I should be binding myself to? I mean, that's the question, right? That's what we ask. The reason why you're asking is because, I mean, you could have feelings for somebody, deep feelings for somebody, but deep inside, you know that feelings always run thin. Feelings can easily run out. Feelings are constantly conflicting with each other. They're constantly changing. You can't rely. You can never anchor yourself to just feelings. And you're trying to look ahead. Will these feelings still be there 10, 20, 30 years from now? How do those couples last that long? Here's the thing. You almost never know based on how you feel today. But once you commit with that promise to bind yourself to that person, do or die, I'm bound to you. The more you leave and the more you cleave in that marriage, the more you die to yourself in that marriage, the more those feelings will continue to grow. So the foundation of any marriage, it's not about that spark that we're looking for. It's about a covenant. It's about the promise that kindles an enduring fire that's going to burn for a lifetime. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But like any fire, you need to respect it. And so there are rules. There are laws. There are roles. There are ways to protect that marriage. You have to think about this. You need it. Laws provide structure. They provide a definition for any relationship. For a citizen, laws are going to define a country. If you sign a mortgage or a lease, those laws define your relationship to your bank. And so it's very similar in a marriage because those laws, those rules will define your relationship with your spouse. We're going to see three things today. What does it mean to be married? What are the implications? Where's the power do you get that you find to, to live out that commitment. So we're going to find the meaning, the implications, and the power. First, we're going to look at the meaning. In a wedding, a wedding is what? It's a public declaration of a covenant promise. It's what you call a covenant ratification ceremony. It's similar to ancient times. There are two parties introduced. Uh, there are obligations. There are rules. The person speaks, they, they speak their vows. You're told of the blessings when you uphold the covenant, and you're, ta- you're told of the consequences when you break a covenant. What are you saying? If I break my vows, if I break my covenant, may I be ripped apart, may I be torn apart, may I be ruined. In other words, what you're saying is no matter what, do or die, I am bound to you forever. Today, I mean, we hate promises. We don't like to make promises. Uh, We don't like being obligated to anything because it creates guilt when we fail. We don't like to be obligated to anyone for that matter. But traditional societies, they understood the power of a promise. Today, we don't want to be held accountable. Why? Because love is a feeling. You got to just go with it. So when they fade, we desire freedom. But the truth is when the Bible talks about love, it's always Never relying on feelings. It's always speaking covenantally. Because love is covenantal, which makes love a choice. You're bound. You're choosing to bind your life. You're choosing to bound your life. 
You're always thinking outwardly. You're thinking outwardly for that other person. In modern love, feelings are explicit and the promises that you make are implicit. But in biblical love, your promises are upfront. Your commitment is explicit because the feelings are implicit. They're built in. And so you're saying, I'm going to cherish you. That's an action. I'm going to act on that no matter how I feel. Now, there are people in this room, definitely, you're kind of like, oh, I mean, that sounds so unromantic, right? But by the end of this, I hope you see nothing more real, nothing more foundational in a relationship than a vow that is not based on your feelings, not based on how you feel. And friends, think about this. The very nature of this passage, beginning with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You're trusting God because what you're saying is you know that God is committed to this. So the, a biblical marriage is saying, I'm going to surrender my personal desires. I'm going to give up my rights, even if I don't want to be faithful. Because my promise is not based on how I feel, especially right now, what I want right now, how good you are right now, how well you're performing right now, even how good I'm performing or how good I am in it. It's based on a public promise that I made because I believe that God is in this. God brought us together. God has, is keeping this marriage together and God's gonna provide every resource that we need to make it through successfully. That means, well, you're gonna get hurt sometimes. You're going to hurt each other. It's going to be painful at times. But if you don't surrender, if you don't love like this, you're going to experience a greater pain of alienation and isolation and loneliness. Love is covenantal. You're made for this. You're made like this. You're designed to reflect this because God's, because God's love is covenantal. It's a covenantal love, and we are created in his image our love is fullest when our love is covenantal. This means, one, marriage is permanent. You can't change your mind. You can't do a, you know, hey, let's, let's backpedal here. There's none of that. There are very few provisions, very few that allow for the breaking of a marriage. Secondly, marriage is exclusive. In other words, if you don't have that kind of love, a singular commitment, a uniform commitment that says, I'm going to give you, one person, everything. I'm going to give you my whole life, lest I be ripped apart from the inside out. Then you shouldn't get married. It doesn't mean that there are no feelings, but it means that your commitment is greater than your feelings, more important than your feelings. It stabilizes your feelings. It grounds your feelings. Look, even if you have really strong feelings for somebody right now, relationship with even the greatest potential will never work without that promise, without that commitment to work at it. And that's going to get you through every dry period, every low period, and over time, even those dry periods will resolve. They're going to start to fade. Now think about this. If this society is not able to breed a resilient faith, why do you think it would breed a resilient friendship? or a resilient marriage, then why are you listening to society's definition of love and marriage? A resilient love, a resilient marriage is a committed love, an exclusive one that says it's for all time. It's for all time. That's what it means. Now, secondly, 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 what, is, what are the implications? One, the modern definition of love says it kind of just happens. It hit me. There's a spark, a feeling, but not in the Bible. In verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. That's how you're going to love your husbands. 
That's an action. Verse 26, husbands, love your wives. He's not talking about feelings. How do we know that? Because he says it's the same way that Jesus loved his church, his bride. He gave himself for her. And verse 26, that's essentially both for the husband and wife because the apostle Paul is saying this is the whole reason, this is the whole purpose for why Jesus Christ gave himself up for the church. That's for both the husband and the wife because the church is male and female, right? To make her holy, to cleanse each other, to wash each other for your holiness, for your sanctification, You're bearing the image of God. Verse 27, to present his spouse as a radiant church. To present her as a radiant church. Verse 29, and so you feed each other. Verse 30, you leave your father and mother to cleave to your wife. These are all action words. In other words, real love is not a measure of what can I get out of this relationship, but what can I give to this relationship? And when two people live like that, oh, I mean, it's beautiful. It's an amazing thing. That means that there are going to be days, and you know this, there are going to be days when you don't feel that warmth of love, but you have to choose to love. It's an action. You have to choose to love anyways. That's real love, grounded love, stabilized love, steadfast love at work. And that's how Jesus Christ loved his people and served his people. And so that's going to bring honor to God. You are connecting with, imagine the difficulty of Jesus looking at his bride, his church, and how difficult that was. And yet, look at his patience and look at his gentleness and look at his faithfulness. And so when you are demonstrating that you are bringing honor to God, why? Because you're doing it out of your, you're remembering Jesus. You're doing this out of your respect, your reverence for Christ That's when you need to surrender to the power of Christ in you when you've got nothing left in the tank and you're not able to do it and you know it and you're just empty. That's when God's power is at work. Secondly, as a result, it's got to be a priority. I mean, we constantly have to invest in our marriage. You're constantly thinking about the other person, thinking for the other person, thinking for the other person first. You see, when you have a baby, some of you are a little bit far away from that, but you're not going to be that far away. When you have a baby, the baby what does the baby do? The baby spits up, the baby does a projectile vomit, you know, it's gross. <laughs> it's gross. It happens. Sometimes it goes in your mouth, you know, and, and you're gagging and you're cleaning diapers and you're just gagging as you're doing it and it gets on your hands and you're like, this is messy, this is so gross, oh my gosh, and, and then he bites you. And he hits you, and he's screaming at you, and yet he needs you, and so he's relying on you for everything, and yet what does he do? You put food in front of his plate, he's complaining about the food, he doesn't want to, he wants to do something else. You see, all your life, he complains about everything, and you get nothing out of that relationship for like 21 years. <laughs> 21 years, maybe more. All you're doing is serving, all you're doing is giving, but the more you serve, the more you love. Why? Because your heart is bound to that child in love. Later on, that child, I mean, God forbid, some children, they get really ill. You're going to love that child less? Oh, you're no use for me? No, you're going to love him more. Maybe that child gets into some serious trouble. You're going to love him less? No, you're going to love him more. You see that? Your heart is bound to that child in love. And so his joy is your joy and his sadness is your sadness. You see that? You're going to love them even more. Marriage, according to the Apostle Paul, is supposed to be like that. You're not covenanted to that child. That child is going to leave you someday. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. That child is going to leave you to uphold a covenant, to build a covenantal relationship with another person. You see that? And so marriage is supposed to be like that, even more like that. But we're not like that with our spouses, are we? This world has, has shifted our view of what love is. You need to remember, friends, in the Garden of Eden, God didn't create a mother and, his, and her child. God didn't put a mother and her child in the Garden of Eden. God put a husband and his wife in the Garden. You know what that means? That that is going to be the most important relationship in your life on earth. God put it there. So it's very important. Verse 30, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying that marriage has to be your top priority. Because in those days, I mean, we're going to talk about this in a bit, but the ancient times, family was everything. And he's saying, you've got to leave your family. That means there's something actually more important than your family. Your marriage is your top priority. If everything around you is falling apart, but you've got a healthy marriage, you're going to be able to navigate life with greater strength. But if, even if everything around you is healthy, if your marriage is falling apart, you're going to be able to, nav- you're going to navigate life with greater weakness. So you need to be really careful that nothing comes before your marriage. Or you're going to invite pain. You're going to invite brokenness. Single friends, what that means is choosing who you marry requires lots and lots of heavy thought. You can't just go with the flow. You can't just do that. And and be taken seriously when you're saying you're thinking about marriage. Do you do that for anything that's important in your life? Do you do that when you're choosing your classes? You you put more thought into that. that. Do you do that when you're signing a lease? When you're purchasing a home? And those things are much less important, we'll say. Do you do that when in any life decision, when you're choosing your career, where you're going to live, choosing your retirement packages? I just feels right. I'm just going to go with it. And, and you can't just go with superficial qualities. And you can't just do a cost-benefit analysis on the potential of your spouse. It's not about the spark. It's not about your emotional connection or, or some sort of deep attraction in the end. It's about someone whom you're going to leave everything for, everything for, to commit with everything you've got forever, for all time. Your marriage is more important than your children. It's going to make it more important than your career. Your marriage is more important than your friends. You know why? Because in the end, marriage is a friendship. It's a friendship. It's the most important friendship. Your marriage is going to be more important than your family. To leave your father and mother. You know what that means? In ancient times, your family... It was your identity. It was your status. It was your name. Now you're going to give up that name for a new name. You see that? You're going to give up everything. You're going to give up your life. The text says you're going to leave your father and mother. You're going to leave your family. In other words, your marriage represents building a new identity, a new status, a new name, a new life. Without always being concerned about what mom and dad are going to say. Their wisdom now becomes secondary. Their hopes for you are secondary. Their desires for you are secondary. They are no longer top priority anymore. But I have to vent about myself. Who's going to hear me? Look, we need to leave our fathers and mothers psychologically. But my father and mother, they're the only ones who get me. You need to leave them emotionally. But my spouse, I mean, he's so different. She's so different from me, especially the way I grew up. You need to leave your old patterns of living. You never, some of us, you know, uh, we have bad relationships with our parents. I can't assume that everyone here has a good relationship. Some of us have really bad relationships with our parents. Well, then you need to stop punishing your parents through your marriage. 
Well, I'm never going to force my kids to go to church. My parents forced me to go to church. I'm never going to force my kids to do family devotions or family prayer because my family forced it on me, shoved it down my throat. I could never consider that person. That, I could never consider that man. He reminds me too much of my, of my dad. I can never marry that woman. She reminds me too much of my mom. You're depriving yourself of opportunities because you're still trying to punish your parents. You're enslaved by your parents still. You're still tied. You haven't left your father and mother. You see that? When marriage is supposed to be a channel of freedom. This is why Paul is reflecting on marriage throughout this passage, and he ends up thinking about Jesus all the time. So he's constantly thinking about Jesus and his church. There are just too many parallels. Marriage is so much. We enter marriage so much the way we enter salvation. It's how we're redeemed. So you can't neglect it. It's got such a power to transform your life, to change you, to expose you, to reveal things about you, to break you, but also to build you back up. Today we use marriage as a man-made convention for self-satisfaction when it's really a God-given provision for transformation. So where do you get the power to live like this? Where do you get the power to do this? If you just look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, what we just read this morning, if you just look at that as a set of rules, it's either going to fill you with pride or it's going to break you. Either you're going to look to your spouse and say, look, I fulfilled my part of the relationship, my part of the rules, so you better do your part of the rules, you better play your role, you better do your part or else, which is going to increase self-centeredness in marriage. Or you're going to say, I failed my part of the marriage. I'm terrible at this part of the marriage. I just can't do it well, then that's just going to increase your self-centeredness. You see that? Uh, Either way, it becomes more about you. Let me tell you an Old Testament story. There was a prophet, Hosea. You know this story? God goes to Hosea, and he says, I want you to marry this prostitute. I want you to marry this adulterous woman. Her name's Gomer. So Hosea, he obeys God, but soon after, Hosea realizes that Gomer is still unfaithful. She's sexually engaged with other men. In fact, Gomer's got children, but it's actually unclear if they all even belong to Hosea. One of them he names Lo-Rumah, which means I am not loved. I don't love that child. And one of them he even names Lo-Am-I. In other words, not mine. Not my people. That's, That's his name. God constantly I mean, Gomer is constantly uh, cheating on Hosea, sleeping with other men, breaks every marital promise, breaks every covenantal promise, and what happens? She's eventually sold off into slavery. And God goes to Hosea, and he says, I need you to go get her back. Why? I mean, there are provisions for this type of life. If, uh, if, if, if your spouse is adulterous, this is, there are provisions for this. This is a crime. But, this, but God says this marriage is covenantal. I mean, there are provisions. But God says, I need you to go and get her back. Because I need you to know about my relationship to you, to Israel, to the church. You are low, Rumahama. You are not loved. You are not lovable. You are low am I. You are not mine. You are not my people. I am your lover. I was bound to you, but you broke every covenant that I've established with you. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfastness with you. You don't even acknowledge me at times. 
And this narrative, this narrative is a parallel to what it's like to be married to you as a people. Go and get her back. Gomer is being sold off as a slave. I mean, she's likely stripped naked, standing in front of a horde of men. Can you imagine that? So the world can see what they're buying, what they're getting. And so there's shame and there's humiliation. I mean, well, she's getting what she deserves. Yes, but imagine. I mean, she's just standing there just in front of all these men, and, and she's in shame, and men are bidding on her. But then there's this familiar voice, a bid. And she looks out. It's her own husband. He's bidding to get his own wife back, to buy back her freedom. And once he gets her back, does he scream at her? Does he yell at her? Does he humiliate her further? No. You know what he does? He takes off his cloak and he covers her. And he says, you're coming home with me today. You're going to be my wife. You don't need to go to these other men. Some of you have never read Hosea. It's there. It's in the Bible. Why did he do it? Because of his feelings? To get something out of this relationship? Because, I mean, let's be real. Hosea is a prophet. This is bad for his reputation. It's bad for his vocation. It's bad for his career. It's going to ruin his career trajectory. And all he got out of it was humiliation and hurt and bitterness and betrayal and pain. It's because of his covenantal love for her. God brought them together. And God is telling him, I need you to go and get her back. Does that sound unromantic to you? That he goes through every great length to get her back, to win her back, to cover her, to love her, to shelter her? I mean, Hosea is an extreme case in the Bible. It's almost hyperbolic. It's almost hard to believe to show us what? To how important God views this relationship that he has with us. And it's modeled best. The Apostle Paul is looking at that. And he says, I want you to love your spouse that much. But think about this. This is nothing compared to what God has done for you. We, God's church, are his great priority. I mean, Hosea, he had to go to what? The next town to get his wife back? Jesus Christ is the greater Hosea, he went from heaven, he left his father's throne above. He left heaven and came to earth. He left eternity and stepped into time to finiteness to get us back. Hosea, he paid overall, he paid a small sum. But he says, Gomer, you are worth it. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price with his life. Hosea, he's bidding for a slave Jesus becomes enslaved. Gomer is a prostitute, but look at us. At some point, most of you or many of you are saying, well, I love the Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He is my Savior. But then soon after, you're just constantly driven by and looking for other lesser things to satisfy your life. You don't really trust God and where he's taking you, and yet God is constantly pursuing you. He's constantly trying to win you back, reminding you of his love and his care for you. Here we are. We are naked. Oftentimes our sin is revealed. We're in shame, but on the cross, what do you see? Jesus Christ is stripped naked, and he pays the ultimate price with his own blood to buy us back. We are covered. 
in his righteousness. We are clothed. He covers us. We are clothed in his robes, robes of righteousness. And Jesus says, you're coming home with me. There's the power to love someone genuinely. How committed was he to this relationship? How committed was he, Jesus, to this covenant? To the end, he was nailed. He's saying, I'm not leaving. I'm going to be stuck here with you. I'm not leaving you. You are loved and you are mine. You are my people. Forever, my joy is bound to your joy. You are my priority. So on the cross, Jesus Christ is thirsting and he's bleeding and he's sweating. You think there was any sense, any ounce of satisfaction? I mean, he was unfulfilled in, his, in terms of his own life. He was unquenched in his thirst. He was broken. He gave of himself. And yet, what was he constantly thinking about? What, was he thinking about relief? No. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about you. Your superficial qualities, your gifts, so oh, I could use this person, your pedigree, he's really smart. <laughs> no. You know what Jesus was fantasizing about? Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 53 says, the thought of his bride being rescued, the thought of his bride being justified, the justification of many. And he says, I can't wait for that. I can't wait to die for you because then you're going to be safe. Does that sound unromantic to you? He died. He chose. He acted. And it was such a priority. The, it, was, it was worth sacrificing his own life. So on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I am not loved. I am no longer yours. Why? So that you would be loved. So that you would be his. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a people belonging to God. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate alienation, the ultimate isolation, the ultimate loneliness on the cross. The wrath of God is just pouring down on, on Jesus to fulfill the penalty of disobeying, our disobedience against the covenant that we made with God. So Jesus is literally being ripped apart. He's literally torn to pieces. He's being ruined. Why? So that we would be a radiant church cleansed by his blood, washed through his word, and fed by his love. And so he sacrificed his body because he loved us like he loved his own body. And Paul says, submit to one another then when you reflect on Christ, out of reverence for Christ, you have the power to do it the way he did. Because there's the fulfillment you need. There is the love, the ultimate love that you've been looking for all your life. And when you see that you are Jesus' ultimate priority, he becomes your priority. And out of reverence for Christ then, you can trust that he is in your marriage. He has brought you together with this person. There is the power to love your spouse the way Jesus loved us. And when you love like that, it's beautiful. When you love like that, it's amazing. And your feelings, you might have strong feelings today. They're going to get rooted and grounded like a seed that when you plant, it's going to grow. 
It's going to blossom. It's going to flourish. You get me? Let's pray together.